This message is from the Axis Church, a redeemed community of missionaries living for the fame of the real Jesus. For more information about Jesus or the Axis Vision in Nashville, go to theaxischurch.org. Last week I preached a sermon regarding the importance of the Bible and uh, why we need it in our lives consistently, regularly. Um, As a part of that sermon, I referenced how Jesus is in the entire Bible and not just beginning in Matthew. Um, I encourage you, I encouraged you then last week, I encourage you now to read the Bible all the way through meticulously and repetitively for the rest of your life. So that among other things that you're affections for Christ would increase and you'll be able to see Jesus in all of the Bible, in all of scripture, not just beginning with Matthew chapter one. I believe that the more that we read and study, the easier it will become for us to see Jesus in the whole Bible. And without the Spirit's help, a fact is, is we will miss him. We will miss Jesus in scripture if we do not seek the Spirit's help to reveal himself to us. We must have his guidance. The fact is that there isn't a a passage of Scripture where the cross doesn't reverberate, doesn't uh, uh, be, you're, you're pointed from every passage of Scripture pointing yourself to the cross, whether it be in the Old Testament or New Testament. The cross is on every page. It's the backdrop of all of Scripture. There's not a passage of Scripture where you can get away from the cross. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20 says, For all the promises of God find their yes in him. All the promises of God, meaning the law, the prophets, the Old Testament. John chapter 5, verse 39 says that you, Jesus says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, yet it's they that, that testify, they that bear witness about me. And the scriptures he's talking about isn't the New Testament because the New Testament wasn't written when Jesus said this. He's speaking of the Old Testament, the law, and the prophets. Remember last week, if you weren't with us, This is what we taught on is is scripture is written with a big storyline, a grand narrative, one big theme. And there's small little stories that pick up in this big theme. But the big theme of scripture, the grand narrative, the grand storyline of the Bible flows from creation to fall to redemption and recreation. Every book, every page is in that theme somehow, some way all pointing to the great redemption that we have in Christ, things that we have to look forward to in paradise with him. And until eight years ago, I read the Old Testament as separate from the New Testament. Even though I had seminary degree, Bible college degree, been in the ministry preaching since I was 14 years old, I was not reading the Old Testament with Jesus in mind. It was almost like if you had to read through the Bible, you just had to work through the majority of the Bible just to get to the New Testament. It's like you had to work through all that boring stuff in the Old Testament to finally get to Jesus and the good news. It was like reading an encyclopedia and then finally getting to read a comic book. I didn't see it as all action. I didn't see it as all interesting. I had to just plow through the meaningless, purposeless, boring pages of the Old Testament 
But eight years ago, this changed for me. Since then, I've been learning more and more that the Bible is one seamless book, that it's all written about God's plan to redeem and restore and rescue his children, his people, make them his, protecting them and allowing them to experience joy for the rest of eternity, throughout eternity in paradise. This means that even in the Old Testament, that we get glimpses and pictures and types and taste of the Redeemer, Jesus who will make all things right again, ultimately rescuing us. The dead theologian Charles Spurgeon, read anything you can, get your hands on from this guy. Charles Spurgeon said, wherever you are in the Bible, find the scarlet thread and run to the cross. Why? Because according to Acts chapter 4, verse 12, salvation is found in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. It's Jesus. Jesus. It's all about Jesus. The one who will come and redeem a people for God's own possession. So the purpose of today's sermon is to take this concept and unpack it a little bit more for us. I would love to see our affections for Christ raise and increase to the highest level yet in our time together this morning. And I hope you're ready to dig and discover. I hope that through our time that you will have a desire to dig and discover like never before. We're going to do this by finding and studying Jesus and worshiping him more and more by seeing him more clearly in what he's done for us. This happened to people in the New Testament as they saw Jesus in the Old Testament. This very increase of affection came with a couple disciples when Jesus began unpacking the Old Testament concerning himself. In Luke chapter 24, you can read along there. So so Jesus has just died. And report has been around that his body's missing. Speaking of his resurrection. But they didn't understand the resurrection yet. You'll see. So so follow. I'm going to start in verse 13. That very day, the, the day of his resurrection, two of them, two of the disciples, were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they they were talking to each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, these two disciples. <laughs> This is crazy. Jesus himself drew near. By the way, that's grace. Just, he didn't have to do that. Just grace. He drew near to them and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. I think that's interesting. This this is why I pray for God to open our eyes. We want him to reveal himself to us, that we would not miss him. Their eyes were kept from recognizing him, verse 17, and he said to them, what is the conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? And this is the picture of us with, the, with, with not being able to see Jesus clearly. And they stood still, looking sad. So they're walking, Jesus kind of just walks up beside them, perhaps out of out of the side of the corner peripheral, begins walking with them, not realizing it's him. What is it that you guys are talking about? And they stop. 
feel like they just, their shoulders are heavy, their head drops, and they just have this sad disposition. Then, then one of them, named Cleopas, answered, now, now listen to the judgment that's in his words here. Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, what things? I love, I love that. I love, I mean, it's, yeah, he gets it. He knows it, but he's, he's wanting to hear them. He's wanting them to work through this with him. He's teaching them. And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped, past tense, hopelessness, despair is present. We had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yeah. And besides all this, it's now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, I mean, this is adding to their despair. This, the resurrection has yet to bring them hope, right? So he's adding to his hopelessness and despair here. On, on top of this hopelessness that we have, some of the women of our company amazed us. They, they were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found, found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. Heaviness, despair. And he said to them, oh foolish ones, oh unlearned ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the scriptures and prophets have spoken. Speaking of the Old Testament, was it not necessary? Again, he's pulling from the Old Testament here to reveal this to them. Was it not necessary that the Christ, the Messiah figure, should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses, Old Testament, and all the prophets, Old Testament, he interpreted to them all in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Again, there was no New Testament yet. So scriptures is the Old Testament. It's what we have. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going farther, but they urged him strongly saying, stay with us. And I pray for that longing for us. That we would, we would seek Jesus this way. That we would linger with him more in scripture and in prayer. Stay with us, for it is toward evening and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. Again, just grace, so packed full of grace. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. What's that sound like? Communion, yeah. And their eyes were opened and they recognized him. Seeing they still could not see, yet here they're able to truly see. And then he vanished from their sight. That's crazy. That's just teleporting. Like he's got it figured out. It's unbelievable. Yet it's believable. They said to each other, did our hearts, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? 
didn't our hearts burn when he was teaching us of himself in the Old Testament? Didn't you feel your affections increasing? Didn't you feel like, like just getting excited about the law, about the prophets concerning himself? Did you feel that? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem and they found the 11 and those, speaking of the disciples, and those who were with them gathered together saying, the Lord has risen indeed and has appeared even to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them and the breaking of bread. And then later on in chapter 24, Jesus comes and meets with his disciples. Look at verse 44. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses, there's stuff written about Jesus in the law of Moses. I never got that until eight years ago. Everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms. So the Old Testament's just packed full of Jesus. Everything written about me in the, in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. This is a divine work of God for us to open up these pages, black letters on white paper to make it pop and come alive in our hearts to begin to warm and excite us. That's a work of God. If you've approached scripture and and haven't experienced this and and bypassed the Bible because it seems boring, like I, I referenced last week as the Wall Street Journal, ask God to make the scriptures come alive to you. Ask him to allow you to experience him as you read his word. Ask the Holy Spirit to make it pop in your heart, pop in your mind. Tell him, frankly, I don't want to be bored in scripture. Help it excite me. He opened their minds to understand the scriptures. He's willing to do this with us. And he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sins is no longer through the law, is no longer through other sacrifices, but that this comes from me, my name being proclaimed to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. And you are now witnesses of these things. And behold, I'm sending the promise of my Father upon you, speaking of the Holy Spirit himself. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Speaking of the great comforter, the Holy Spirit. I love that passage of scripture. It was eight years ago through this passage of scripture that my eyes were opened to seeing Jesus as the ultimate superhero of all of the Bible and not just the New Testament. See, I was raised where you made heroes out of Old Testament characters. Jesus, he tended to be just a little bit more of a better hero than the other heroes. But for the most part, Abraham, Moses, Noah, David, Daniel, they were often just as big of a deal as Jesus. And you could be taught these Old Testament characters 
in church, in school, in Sunday school, in your Bible lessons. You could be taught the Old Testament characters and never hear Jesus mentioned. That's not the point of the Old Testament. The point of the Old Testament is to hear Jesus. It's to hear him taught from those pages. It's what he instructed his disciples on the road to Emmaus. It's connected. It's woven. When we make heroes out of the Old Testament characters, we tend to lean heavily towards moralism. Like, do these things. Imitate these guys. Be like this. Dare to be like this. Or, or we... We, we tend to lead towards legalism. You just don't need to do this. Because Samson didn't do this, so you shouldn't do this. We focus on rules to live by rather than Jesus fulfilling all that's required for us so that now we have a chance to live life to the fullest, experience his grace and forgiveness as we try our best to follow him in obedience, knowing that we will fail, knowing that he has succeeded perfectly for us on our behalf. A couple of examples of this traditional view. For instance, with David. When you think David, what do you think? Goliath, yeah. I mean, we know it, right? If you're like me, you've seen the flannel graph cut out. How, how big Goliath was, right? Barely fitting on the, the green, right? Y'all remember? Y'all know it? It's the ultimate PowerPoint because you literally had to point it, like touch it and get it out, right? Well, the, the traditional view of David, sermon titles might be, for instance, how to kill your giant. Or one that I've preached before, when the armor doesn't fit. Or five smooth stones. Or conquering your giants. Or facing your giants. You see, we picture ourselves as David. We picture ourselves as the underdog who through enough determination and bravery and faith, he beats the odds and conquers his great foe. But this is not reading the Old Testament as a part of the grand story of redemption. With this view, you're left in despair when you've done everything you know how to do and your giant is still standing as strong as ever. What do you do? You try harder. Moralism. You do away with that stuff. Legalism. You're not following obediently enough. Weight. Burden. If you would just do this, if you would just try harder, it just accumulates the weight and you feel condemned. We can admire certain attributes of Old Testament characters, but we must know that they all and only point to Jesus, who we are to admire more than admire, who we are to flat out worship and adore and cherish like the greatest treasure ever conceived. He's the one that we should imitate. David and Goliath is not about us being brave or choosing the right smooth stones from the river to fling at the, the figurative giant that we face to find victory and be winners if we're brave enough and try hard enough. That's horrible. That's weighty. That's ridiculous. That's not the point of David and Goliath. David and Goliath was written hundreds of years before Jesus walked the earth and is still about Jesus coming to be the greater David, to be our representative in the eternal battle that we could never win on our own. He came to fight for us against our biggest foes of Satan, sin, death, and hell. 
And he came to crush them and shame them openly through himself being crushed and shamed openly on the cross in our place for us. And he came to defeat them forever through his resurrection. To where in the big picture of things, the big scheme of things, the big plan, they are powerless and under him completely. You know, when we, read, when we read the Bible, we always try to read ourselves into the text. And that's a, that's a good practice to, to see where you are in this story. Yet most commonly, our instinct is, is when we read ourselves in the text, as we read ourselves into the text as being the good ones, the noble ones, the obedient ones, right? Those who found favor. We all desperately want to be David who slays our giant. Yet it's Jesus who's come to face the giants of our enemies for us. In the story, if you know the story, David had some brothers, and when he showed up to fight, they were terrified and making fun of him. Like, what are you going to do? Like, we're just, we're just kind of ducking out and, you know, just waiting until this is over. David stands up and says, you hear what they're saying about our God? You're going to let him defy God? No. And he just runs out to him. The brothers are like, oh my goodness, like you're going to die, right? You're supposed to be tending the flock of our father's sheep. You're not a soldier. They said to their brother David, we're the fearful brothers. We're the hopeless brothers who are too afraid to stand against our enemy. We're the cowards who are incapable of fighting for ourselves. If you want to read yourself into the story of David and Goliath, that's who you are. Or perhaps even more accurate, you're the ones already killed by Goliath. And you're laying in the battlefield lifeless and dead. That's where we are in the story. We aren't even in the story. We aren't even as good as those brothers who are still alive. We are dead, hopeless, helpless in our sin. Were it not for the greater David, who came to fight the greatest foe for us and bring us from death back into life, letting us enjoy the confetti of the victory. This is the greater David. Another example is Noah. We, we read ourselves as those who are saved through our obedience, yet Noah is a story of grace, not ultimately obedience. Noah is a picture of our redeemer. It's a picture of our rescuer. His work saved his family from God's judgment. However, Noah didn't bear the burden of God's judgment. The ark did. So when we read the story of Noah, we must see Jesus not only as the greater Noah rescuing his family who works hard and obeys to do this, but we also must see Jesus as the greater ark who through wood bore the weight and burden and punishment of God's wrath for us so that we're protected and safe and rescued. That's the point of Noah and the ark. You see, in this story, we are those who make fun of Noah. We're left drowning in the floods of judgment. And at best, we hear Noah's warnings, yet we choose our own way. By grace and through the Spirit, we now can hear and see the greater Noah and see him, Jesus, as our rescuer. These are just two examples of the hundreds of pictures and types and tastes of Jesus in the Old Testament. And my experience has been that studying the Bible this way will cause your heart to burn within you. 
It becomes like a treasure hunt. You get excited about it. It's compelling. You begin to look and search and experience this burning like the disciples experienced on the road to Emmaus. Remember those men on the road to Emmaus. Jesus was right there in front of them. He was teaching them, but they did not know that it was him. They did not know the Old Testament was about Jesus. It wasn't until the Spirit opened their eyes and hearts to understanding that then they were able to know. Jesus is the one who must reveal himself to us in the scriptures. He's the one who feeds us and who makes us drink. Going to our Bibles without asking the Spirit to help us because of the reality of our helplessness and dullness of heart. It's like staring at a feast, never consuming it, never tasting it, never enjoying it. It's our responsibility, I believe, to regularly spend time in the scriptures, to consistently ask the spirit to open our eyes that we may behold wondrous things out of your law, Psalm 119, verse 18. As we seek Jesus in the scriptures and and as we ask the spirit to guide us and help us, the spirit will open our minds and hearts to understand. He will. And Jesus will reveal himself to us. Often for me, perhaps for you, it comes down to whether or not you want to spend time in the Bible. It's like we expect this urgency and drive to be there before we go to it. My experience has been going to it consistently is what creates that desire to be there. Like last week, I referenced the, we, we eat foods and drink drinks today that we didn't like at first, but it was kind of bearing with them and working through it, appreciating it, where now some of the things that we used to hate the most are things that we most love. And then I also point out our spouses, who those who are married, it's like odds are you didn't just like, pow, like the whole world stopped when you saw your spouse today. Like I knew Jill for over three years before I asked her on a date. Like I didn't even... We had class together. I didn't think anything special about her. Yet spending time with her, my affections increased to the point where I now love her and where today I would die for her. It wasn't there day one. But time with her is what created this passion and love and this desire. I believe it to be the same way in Scripture. So rather than just sitting back waiting with the Bible shut, what if you began digging what if you began spending time? What if you began asking Jesus to reveal himself to you like he did the disciples on the road to Emmaus so that your heart would burn in a similar way? What if you asked the Spirit of God to take the, the, the scales as it is off our eyes so that we can clearly see that there's hope in the Bible? Why not ask the Spirit to grant you the desire to have a desire? What if, what if you ask God, 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 help me care to care. Help, help, me, help me be dissatisfied when I'm not regularly spending time with you in your word. Convince me that you satisfy. Convince me that I'm dissatisfied. Help me as as I live life and experience different levels of satisfaction through things, help me never become stuck there, satisfied ultimately in those things and in that moment. 
Help me always desire a deeper satisfaction that I'm not experiencing until my affections are on you in that worshipful way. Ask God to reveal to you the importance of Scripture, it being literally your daily bread. So many people in the church are malnourished. The fact is there's more skeptics and God-haters who study the Bible to discredit it than there are Christians today in the church who supposedly are to be spending time in the Bible. We're malnourished. Begin feasting on what's before you in the Bible. Get up. Do the hard thing of reading and pursuing God in the Bible. I plead with you, get up and begin praying regularly. Whatever that looks like. Chiseling time daily to be in the word. As, as your pastor, understanding the authority that I have given by God that he tells me about in scripture, looking at the flock at Axis, I'm pleading with you. Read your Bible. You might not believe it to be important or significant, but if you would just trust me as a God-given leader for your soul, read your Bible. It is important. You aren't good enough to wing it off of podcast and Sunday sermons and access community discussions. You have to feast on the word yourself. You're going to go to lunch today. And you're not just going to look at people eat. You're going to eat. Don't just go through the Christian motions of gathering and hearing and podcasting and singing without taking and putting the food in yourself, in your mouth yourself. You're malnourished. And it's affecting so much of your life. Seek God in his word. Study, become students of the book. Ask God to help you apply what it is that he's teaching you. God has spoken. He has spoken. He has revealed himself to you. Go and taste. Go and feast. Do it. And if you don't want to, ask God. God to help that not be okay in your heart and help ask him to help change your wants. Daily learn more and more of what Jesus Christ has done for you and how much God just loves you through the finished work of Jesus. That is what you need. That's a need. That makes a better neighbor. That makes a better teacher. That makes a better husband and daddy. That makes a better roommate and an employee. That, that makes a better sister and an aunt. That makes a better son and a daughter. That makes a better janitor. That makes a better bus driver. That makes a better police officer. That makes a better dentist. That makes a better songwriter. One who spends time in scripture, that feasting over the word of God by faith and consistently, it changes you. It brings you to such 
higher level of health as you're continued daily to read of God's love and the finished work of Jesus. One of the ways that we seek to, to treasure Christ together as a church family is communion, the Lord's Supper. Communion illustrates for us the infinite value and the, the infinite treasure that we have in Jesus Christ. The broken bread that we have to offer you today, it's a picture of the broken body of Jesus on the cross for us. The wine and the juice that we offer you today, it's a picture of the sacrificial blood that poured from Jesus' body as God poured his wrath out on him, the wrath that you and I deserve. We come to communion today and we remember that our greatest enemies of Satan, sin, and death have been defeated through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, our greater David, our greater Noah, our greater Ark, our greater Joseph, our greater Abraham, our greater Jonah, on and on and on. We remember his work for us. We come this morning rejoicing together as we share this meal together as Christ followers that in Christ our sins have been forgiven and God's love and his pleasure towards us is ours. And we remember this together today. Let me pray for our time. Consider these things as you take communion. Pray and search your hearts before you come and take. Our servers can make ready. Let me pray. Jesus, thank you for your help. Thank you for your hard work that you've done for us. Lord, thank you for being the big deal and being worthy of time, being worthy of our study. Lord, thank you that we can never exhaust your majesty regardless of how much time we spend in the Bible. There's still so much more majesty and grace and tenderness and kindness than we could ever get through in the Bible. Hours and hours of study. That's just how good you are. Father, we could never exhaust knowing your grace and your love towards us. That's how great you are. Spirit, we could never exhaust understanding your comfort and guidance and help and generosity. That's how great you are. Yet daily, our desire is to come to you and learn a little bit more, to have our affections increased a little bit more, to develop a, a, a better palate for your goodness and grace in the scriptures and, and, and a greater dissatisfaction with the things we taste of this earth. God, may this be true of your people. Lord, as we come to your table this morning, would we truly remember what you've done for us, how you have slayed our enemies and that they are under you. So in this life of brokenness at times, this hopelessness, would we be able to persevere through knowing that ultimately and one day we will see and know all things are under you. 
and you are the grand weaver, the sovereign, providential God who works in and through our daily lives, broken moments and reconciled moments. Lord, capture and captivate our hearts like never before. Make this year, make this month, make this week a treasure hunt for us as we spend time feasting and digging for you in scripture and let it change us. Thank you, Jesus, in Christ's name, amen.